Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, as we uh, as we gather here as brothers and sisters who are making a profession of faith in a great and glorious King, I pray that we would be um, overwhelmed with the sense of your presence here with us. Not that you are more present in we. when we sing songs or when we uh, listen to your word proclaimed, but that our hearts are softened, our minds, our eyes and ears are aware and attuned to the fact that, that you are speaking to us now through your word. God, I pray that uh, we would be overwhelmed with the gospel, the fact that you have taken enemies people who have hated you and stood as traitors and and rebels, and you have brought them as sons and daughters into your kingdom. And God, I pray that we would be overwhelmed with that, that we would be changed by that, uh, that it would motivate every aspect of our lives, our words, our thoughts, our deeds. And I pray that... um, that with one voice we would, um, in complete unity, cry out in prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done. And uh, Lord, use us in any way that you would choose to make that happen. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. May Christ be honored in this time. And it's in the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, what do you all think of when you hear the word kingdom? What, what sort of images come to mind when you think of the word kingdom? Do you, do you think of, of domains? Do you think of sort of earthly realms, sort of geographic boundaries? Do you think about kings and queens, maybe knights and castles? Do you think of like, sword fights and jousting and acts of heroism and saving the damsel in distress? Do you think about glory? What about, what comes to mind when you think about the term or the phrase kingdom of God? Does that change anything? Does that change the way you look? Do you, do you think about the kingdom of God in terms of, of God as the sovereign ruler who, is, who has authority over his domain do you, do you think about God in His power, in His glory? Some of you might be thinking future, but some of you might be thinking present. Some of you might be thinking, you know what, the kingdom of God is just really us following the moral example of Jesus and trying to bring heaven here on earth. But I wonder, when you think of the kingdom of God, how many of you wonder or think about or dwell upon the fact that the kingdom of God is hidden? How many of you, your thoughts go towards the fact that the, the kingdom of God is secret or scattered or that it's quiet and gradual? How many of you thought about the fact that the kingdom of God would come in ways that no one could possibly expect? in ways that no one could, com- could control at all, in ways that no one could even comprehend. How many of you thought about the king and his cross? Or the difficult entrance into the kingdom of God through a life of repentance and faith? 
How many of you thought about the Lordship of Jesus? How many of you thought about God's new community, His subjects, His church? You know, when we think about the kingdom of God, we think about grandeur and power and dramatic transformation, transformation of people's hearts, transformation of culture, transformation of society, transformation of the world. But the kingdom of God is not like anything that we would expect. It's it's, from these hidden, insignificant, and unforeseen beginnings comes a kingdom that is so paradox that it will actually turn us on our heads. It will come in ways that we won't expect. And we'll find that, that in this small, secret, unpredictable kingdom is far more glorious, far more dramatic, far more life-changing than we could ever possibly comprehend. Today, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 34. I encourage you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we've got them in the chairs. It's page 839. I hope you'll read with us. And what we're going to see is that God is the one that makes His kingdom grow. And it starts from these inconspicuous, meager beginnings to well up to these astounding, evident, clearly uh, visible and honored results. So please read with me. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 26. And He, Jesus, said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter the seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it it is sown, it grows up, and it becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches, so that the birds of the air can make make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately, To his own disciples, he explained everything. I want you to start out by keeping your eyes right there in verses 33 and 34. All right? Mark narrates, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them. Them is the crowd. All right? As they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them, the crowd, without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Remember that in starting in chapter 4, verse 1 through 34, Mark is describing to us how and why Jesus taught in parables. He's trying to teach us something about Jesus' parabolic ministry, if you will. You know, if you read in Matthew and Luke, you see parables everywhere. Jesus taught with these narratives, these these two-meaning narratives. But here in Mark, there's only four mentioned, and we're looking at the last two of them today. This is just a, a, a brief um, caveat for us to understand. Mark is presenting um, this so that we can understand about Jesus' ministry and to provide some theological insight into the how and the why behind it. 
So Mark summarizes this section here in verses 33 and 34 by reminding us that Jesus spoke to the crowd with these two meaning narratives. But he gave explanation in everything to his disciples, to the ones that actually followed him. Those that truly wanted to understand, those that truly wanted to know and to love Jesus who followed him, he would reveal the secrets of the kingdom of God to them because they were seeking him, because they asked, because they were with him. He was revealing to them the true meaning of the secrets of the kingdom of God, helping them to understand who he was and why he came and what it means to follow him. But to everyone else, he spoke in parables. And he did this, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in verse 12, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now again, that was a harsh statement. And and I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon to, to fully understand what Jesus meant by that, but you see, true understanding and saving faith comes only through following Jesus and recognizing who He truly is, not simply what He can do for you. And that's why the crowd was there. They didn't want Jesus. They'd made a decision about Jesus and what they were willing to do in their relationship with Jesus. And so He speaks parables to them, but reveals the true meaning to those who are truly with Jesus, who truly follow Him. But I wanted to highlight these two verses because they provide this summary, this inclusio of verses 1 through 34, showing the connection between where we have been and where we're going, and also because they don't make for a good ending of this sermon, and so I wanted to get them out of the way ahead of time, right? But they also help to identify who the audience is. The audience is the crowd and the disciples, right? So don't look at these two parables that we're looking at today as a continuation of the explanation that Jesus was giving to his disciples and those who were with him from verses 10 through 25, all right? These are separate occasions. And Mark just compiles them together because he's trying to teach us something. Mark's not really concerned about chronology. He's not really concerned about this, then this, then this, then this, then this. This is why this, we only have the parable section that Jesus taught right here in chapter 4 and then never again. right? But Mark is very intentional about this because he wants us to learn something about the how and the why of the parables. And he includes these two because he wants to teach us some very specific things about Jesus in the coming kingdom of God. His goal is to give us the manner, the purpose, and some examples of the parables, not to lay them all out for us. Okay? So, just because they don't flow out of the same conversation or happen in chronological order, it doesn't mean that Mark doesn't have theological reasons for including these two specific parables, because he's very intentional about that. First, he wants us to understand what Jesus meant when he speaks about the secret or the hiddenness of the kingdom of God that he had mentioned in verse 12 and in verse 22. But second, he wants us to to make sure that we know where the growth of the seed comes from. Remember, we identified the seed to be the word of God from the parable of the sower. We, We determined that the soil was the hearts of men, right? But he wants us to make absolutely sure that we get where the growth comes from. All right? So we don't mistake and and go off into error trying to grow the seed ourselves. And third, he wants us to understand our place and our purpose in this realization of the kingdom. He wants us to know what we are supposed to do as the kingdom of God grows. 
Okay? So this is why Mark includes these two parables. In the first parable, in verses 26 through 29, this is unique to Mark. It's not in any other gospel account. He wants us to understand that God is the one that makes the kingdom grow. Let's read it again. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Now, if you guys remember, it's been a while we talked about what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is not some realm. It's not some geographical area, right? Like God reigns over the earth, right? It's not in terms of location. Um, The kingdom of God is not defined by God's reign over the world, whether people recognize it or not. The kingdom of God is not comprised of believer and unbeliever alike. The kingdom of God is centered on the ruler, on the reign of the king. That's the focus of the kingdom of God. And those who are part of the kingdom of God are those who recognize who that king is. The kingdom of God is centered on the king. And to to be a part of that kingdom, you have to recognize and submit yourself to that king, to follow him. In other words, the kingdom of God is the nature of God's rule over individuals' hearts through Jesus. The kingdom of God is comprised of God's new community. That's the church. Those who are unified together by repentance and faith under the authority of Jesus Christ. These people make up the kingdom of God. That is the kingdom of God. Mark is telling us that the kingdom, this rule and reign of Christ, comes as the seed, which is which we know from verse 14 comes through the word, more specifically the gospel. As the gospel is sown, the growth that it produces is the kingdom of God. And we know that the soil, again, is the hearts of men. So the kingdom grows as the word of God is sown on the hearts of people. And then what? He says the earth produces by itself. It happens automatically. It happens how the farmer doesn't know. But it happens steadily. First the blade, then the ear, and then it happens fully until the grain, the full grain of ear is in the ear. You know, most of us aren't farmers, so we don't really get this or maybe even think about this. And, and all of us are not ancient Near Eastern Palestinian farmers, so we get this even less, right? You know, in that day and age, it was evident. It should be evident to all of us, but it was definitely evident in that day that the seed grew because it was a divine act of God. It was divinely automatic. You don't cause the seed to grow. I mean, what do you do, right? I mean, just think about this. The idea of taking a seed, throwing it on the ground, and that produces something. I mean, what did you do about that? Absolutely nothing. This is mind-boggling. This is something to marvel in. I mean, botanists and horticulturists, they spend their lives studying the fact that you can take a seed and you can throw it on the ground and it will grow, right? Right? I mean, they, they, they learn how you can manipulate conditions to make it grow better, but they cannot explain how it is that that seed can actually grow. None of us can. 
It's one of those miracles and marvels of life. It's, it's divinely automatic. And just like the seed, only God can grow the kingdom. We cannot grow the kingdom. He determines the timing and He determines the process. Alright? He does it slowly. First the blade, then the ear, until it's fully ripe. And what does the farmer do about it? Absolutely nothing. Says he sleeps. He gets up. Tends to other business. He sows more seed. That's what the farmer does about it. He doesn't make that seed grow. God will reveal His kingdom in His own way and in His own timing. And you and I, we can't change that. We have no effect on that. God does that. Though we pray your kingdom come, we don't speed up the process. Right? This is God's timing. In His perfect wisdom, God has determined the means, He's determined the process, He's determined the growth, He's determined the time span, and He has determined the harvest. And we don't add to that. The farmer contributes nothing to that. So in other words, God makes the kingdom grow. God makes His Word effective in the soil of the hearts of men. God's grace applied changes us. It transforms us. It sanctifies us. It causes us to be more like Christ. Do you guys realize that you can't save anybody? Do you realize that you cannot cause people to be born again? Do you realize that regeneration is out of your control? That you cannot provide new birth? That you cannot provide conversion? Really? How many of us labor and sweat and live in fear when we have to share the gospel because we think that if I don't get it just right, then that person won't come to know Christ. God does this. The the kingdom grows throughout the world It's divinely automatic. God does it, not man. And so who's the farmer? Well, we learn from the parable of the sower that the sower was first Jesus, right? Jesus was the sower, but as His disciples followed Jesus, as the disciples' goal was to be with Him and to do what He did, we saw that they did the very same thing that the sower was doing. They sowed the seed. And so, at first sense, it's the, the sower's Jesus, but it's also everyone who follows Jesus is a sower. And I think we can apply that same logic here to who is the farmer. Well, the farmer's first Jesus, but also it's those who follow Him. <clears throat> the farmer first is the God-man, Jesus Christ, but it is all of us. Jesus in his humanity is explaining to us how it is that he could be content to sow the seed and go to sleep at night. Right? I mean, think about this. Jesus has this huge crowd following him. This polyplethora of people following him. So much so that it's 5,000 men, right? Don't know how many women and children. It's a huge crowd following Jesus around, but only a few were His disciples. Jesus is explaining, listen, the kingdom of God, it's going to grow because my Father's going to do it. My responsibility is to sow the seed. Your responsibility is to sow the seed. Go to sleep. That's really what it's about. It's being faithful 
with what you've been given and trusting the results to God. We, like the farmer, like, like Jesus in this parable, are not responsible for the growth. God takes care of that. Our responsibility is to sow the seed. The kingdom grows as God makes the word effective on the hearts of his elect. But we don't know who they are. We're not to know who they are. So we sow the seed. We sow it bountifully. We sow it richly. We sow it faithfully. We sow it dependently. We sow it confidently. We sow it patiently. But we sow it. And if you have the seed, you are to sow the seed. If you have the word, you are to share the word. It's that simple. That's what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples. This is your responsibility. The growth belongs to God. So sow the seed. Then what? Go to sleep. Because you can't cause the seed to grow. Only God can. And it is God through the work of the Holy Spirit that causes the word to penetrate people's hearts. It's God that causes that kind of change that allows it to take root and grow in your lives. And you know from personal experience that it happens gradually, yet it happens continually. It doesn't happen all at once, but it's a slow and steady progress of the gospel being applied to your lives that you start, you stop living for yourselves and start to live more and more for Christ. And as that happens, little by little by little, you are changed to where you're more like the king. And as that happens, little by little, in all of us, the kingdom of God grows. It advances little by little, gradually. First the the blade, then the ear, then the grain in the ear. That's how God intended it to be. Our responsibility is to prepare our soil, the soil of our hearts, to listen carefully to the word and to bear fruit by sowing the seed, by proclaiming the gospel. We do this faithfully, we do this patiently, we do this dependently, we do this confidently. But let's face it, that doesn't always set well with us, right? We are a society that's defined by the remote control. I mean, think about it. Our society is just just overdone with technological advances to make our lives easier, right? We want to have control over our situation, over our lives right now. We want them to conform, to bow down to my liking, to my desires. And so whether it be our, you know, being able to control our TV while we're sitting down or heating up our, our food in an instant through a microwave or, you know, minimizing pain and suffering and death through, through medical advancements. I mean, it, it, there's no end to the fact that we try to control the world around us to, to make it conform to our liking. We want to take control from God and have it function by remote control. The one that's in our hands. That's what we want. And we do this with seeds too. I mean, there's, we genetically engineer seeds so that, that they can produce more fruit. So that they grow taller. That they're more resistive to, to pests and disease and so that they just look prettier because that's more palatable to us. I like my corn to be yellow, not white, right? And so we genetically modify those things so that we can get what we want. I mean, it's to such an extreme now that you can actually start your car from some other state with your cell phone. I mean, this is how, how much we want to control our situation. And we do the same thing with the seed of God's word. 
We think that we can cause the kingdom to grow. We think that we can cause the kingdom to advance if we can just manipulate that seed, if we can change it, if we can conform it and twist it around so that it's more palatable, so that it's more appealing, so it's more pleasing to the eye and to the, to the soul, if you will, but really it's just the emotions. And there's a number of approaches that we can take to try to control kingdom growth. The first is easy believism. Right? We have this easy believism approach where we try to get rid of everything that's bitter. Anything that kind of tastes bad. We're going we're gonna to take the gospel. We're going to get rid of sin. We're going to get rid of judgment. We're going to get rid of the cross. We're going to get rid of, of hell. And we're just going to present God as some moralistic, therapeutic deity who loves us unconditionally and tolerantly and pluralistically will bring us into his kingdom. And we'll spice it up a bit. We'll make it less esoteric, less end times. We'll add health, wealth, and prosperity. So it's your best life now. That'll bring him in. That'll bring him in. Or we take this marketing approach. You know, it's really, it's about style. It's about presentation. We have to work, you know, we've got the seed and it's a good thing, but we've got to spice it up so that it looks good, right? And we'll do this artistically, or we'll try to make it novel, or we'll try to make it relevant, we'll try to make it appeal to a certain demographic, because then they'll accept it because it looks good and they like it, right? Or we'll take this emotional or therapeutic approach, if I can just manipulate the surroundings, I'll make it more appealing because they'll have some sort of response. They'll have some sort of experience. I can lower the lights. I can crank up the music so that the bass causes their hearts to palpitate. And we'll do all this kind of stuff. And they're like, we'll just run around freely because that's, whoa, I'm in the spirit, you know, and do all this stuff. And people will weep and they'll do all this kind of stuff. And when they have this emotional response, then they'll come to Jesus, Right? Just removing those boundaries. There's the over-contextualized approach. Right? We're like, you know what? If we're really going to get the gospel to penetrate somebody's life, we have to, we have to build off of this truism of like attracts like. We've got to, so what we need to do is we need to cater to a very specific demographic. Right? We're going to focus all our attention and all of our efforts on college students. Or all of our effort on upper middle class businessmen. That's what we're going to do, right? And so everything is going to be focused on their wants, their desires. We're going to, we're going to present in such a way. We're going to live. We're going to talk in such a way where our messages are going to conform. It's not too different from marketing, but the purpose is just one slight demographic. Forget this, this idea of, of, the unity of the church in, in diversity. Forget this idea of sh- sh- preaching the gospel without partiality. You know, we have to make it relevant. We, we have to get involved. We have to know what movies people watch. We have to know what music they listen to. We have to dress like them. We have to speak their language. Right? Ah. I mean, seriously. Or there's the works-based approach. And this one gets far more than you would think. The works-based approach says that if we can just get people to do something and do something good, then they'll be saved. That could be religious ritual. Get them to pray this prayer. Get them to do this ordinance over here. Get them to take mass. 
you get, get them to do all this stuff, then they'll be saved. Or we can do it in terms of, of good works like charities or good causes like social action. If we just get people to do something, then they'll be included into the kingdom of God because the kingdom is a present reality and we can just change the world right now and make it some sort of utopia just by getting everybody involved in good works. And so we redefine the gospel to make it about what we do rather than about what we can't do. And this is appealing. We want this because this is remote control. There are probably more. There are probably more approaches that we can take. But each one of these approaches adjusts and alters the gospel. Listen to me carefully. They adjust the gospel. Each one of them manipulates and misrepresents the seed. Each one of them distorts and disfigures God's word. Each one of them deforms and defames Christ. We have no right to do that. We as human beings have no right to tamper with the gospel. Even if our attentions are really good, we cannot mess with it. We do not have the right. Because what we do is end up making people trust in something other than the gospel to be saved. It's Jesus and this. Jesus and my emotional experience. Or Jesus and the fact that I'm around people that are just like me. That it's really easy to be friends with. Because they don't struggle with poverty. And they're not a different skin color. And they don't speak a different language. I mean, you name it. And we do this over and over and over again. And it's not what we're to be about. Human beings have no right to mess with the gospel through persuasive words or through, through clever or relevant style. And that's not what it's about. It's about Jesus. And when we tamper with the gospel, when we make these adjustments, when we make it about these other things, the best that we can do is manipulate the circumstances and the situations so that we're not really bearing gospel fruit. We're placing our trust in something else. We actually manipulate and falsify falsify and fool people into thinking that they have been saved when in truth they've been manipulated into professing a lie or a distortion or a half-truth and placing their hope in things that are other than the gospel. We don't mess with the gospel. Only the truth of the gospel has the power to save and we have no business tweaking it to make it more appealing or more palatable or more entertaining or easier to swallow. We cannot take away the truth. If you manipulate the gospel, it's not the gospel. This is obvious enough, guys. If you manipulate the gospel, it is not the gospel. We can't change it in order to produce more fruit because if we do, the fruit that we get is not gospel growth. It's not kingdom growth. It's something else. It's something else. You know, we, we strive really hard at Redeemer to make our church a gospel-centered church. I mean, our mission statement is we exist to build redemptive communities of gospel-centered people. We want gospel at the heart of it. We're not 
targeting a specific demographic, even though we happen to be 70% college students. That's not what we're trying to do. And in fact, we make efforts to go in the other direction. Right? This is just what God has given us. But he's given it to us because we've sown the gospel without partiality. We don't emphasize style or try to market ourselves in a certain way. My dress code, which if you come here often, know it kind of looks like this, but there are just a couple of really practical reasons for this. I roll up my sleeves because I hate them, right? And I wear button-down shirts because I have to stick this mic on here, right? If we get, you know, get a lot of money, get one of them fancy little deals, you know, I can open up my repertoire a little bit, you know, open up my closet. You can see all the other outdated clothes that I happen to wear. Yep. And if that doesn't top it, Caleb certainly will. <laughs> should have him show you his sweatpants. <laughs> Looks good. Looks good. We're also not trying to manipulate your emotions, guys. Not that you don't have an emotional experience from the, the truth of the word penetrating your heart, but, but my goal is not to speak in such a way that you are duped into having some sort of response. I'm not going to tell some deep, heartfelt story that's going to make you sad unless it's really pertinent to the truth of the gospel, and the gospel is clearly proclaimed, but that's not my goal. That is not our goal. And we're certainly not going to tamper with God's word. We try hard to be faithful with it, to preach it truthfully, even when we come across hard verses like, like verse 12 in this passage. You know, lest they indeed, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, lest they hear and not understand, and lest they should turn and be forgiven. I mean, come on, that is not an easy one to tackle. But we're not shying away from it. We're trying to be faithful with God's word because we know that it is through the gospel and the gospel only that people are saved. You realize that numeric growth that you see from making these adjustments to the gospel is not true gospel growth. And what we need, friends, what all of us need is redemption from our sins. We need to be saved from the fact that we have willingly, happily, and gladly lived as rebels against a good and holy and perfect creator God who we owe just by the fact that we live our allegiance. But over and over and over again, we have rebelled against him in thought and word and deed and tried to live our lives without him. Tried to live as if this is my world and I am God. And the only hope we have of saving us from this is nothing that we can do, but everything that Christ has done by willingly sacrificed himself on the cross for sins. He lived a perfect life. He gave up that life on the cross and he rose from the dead to prove that if you believe and trust in Christ, you can have eternal life. It is yours and you are changed by that. A work of God takes place in your heart. You are given the Holy Spirit. So now, as the gospel is continued to be proclaimed in your life, you are changed over and over and over to be more like Him until the day when Christ returns and everyone stands in judgment before God. Every single person. And that those who have by faith received Christ will have eternal life. They will be reconciled to God. They will dwell with Him for eternity. But for those who have continued to neglect the Word, to turn their hardened hearts and live for themselves, they will suffer the eternal wrath of God. We need that. We never move away from that. 
This is not just the beginning of the Christian faith. It is the Christian faith. Any kind of growth you have, if it's not gospel growth, it's not growth at all. Growth in emotional experience, growth in my own self-righteous, self-willed works, you know, growth in that I ignore the hard truths of Scripture and, and live in a safe little bubble. I mean, that's not growth. So we need to patiently and faithfully and dependently and confidently live in the gospel so that we proclaim the gospel. And as that happens, the kingdom of God continues to grow. He does the work, not us. And when his time comes, when the grain of his kingdom is ripe, at once he will put in the sickle because the harvest has come. All right, both Joel chapter 3 and Revelation 14 use this language of ripe grain, of putting in the sickle of this coming harvest to describe the judgment of God. When the full measure of God's kingdom, when God's people under God's plate, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing is ripe, is full, Jesus will come and all will stand in judgment before him. And all those who have trusted in Christ will spend eternity with him and those who have rebelled who have failed to listen to God's word, will spend eternity under the wrath of God. So until then, we are to patiently and faithfully sow God's word so that God's people will know that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and be included into God's new community of the redeemed. We do this not by manipulating or adjusting the gospel, but by proclaiming the entire truth of the gospel in word, in thought, and in deed. That's what we're responsible for. God will grow His kingdom. In the second parable, we see that not only does God grow His kingdom in His own way, but it grows from inconspicuous and meager beginnings to astounding and evident ends so that He alone gets the glory. In verses 30 through 32, Jesus tells a second parable. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or, or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and it becomes larger so that all garden plants... Uh, so it's larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. In this parable, Jesus is teaching us about the dramatic growth of the kingdom, how it goes from virtually unobservable beginnings to these miraculous, God-glorifying ends. He compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. Now, mustard seed is only about one or two millimeters in, in width, and it's the smallest of all seeds that were used in farming in the day of Jesus. If you need an idea for size, it's basically the size of a grain of sand. Just a grain of sand. Now, there are smaller seeds out there in the world 
Uh, and, but Jesus' point is not to give a scientific disputation over the fact that the mustard seed is the smallest on earth, but he's there to say, listen, you guys who are involved in farming, you know and understand this. We don't have a seed smaller in ancient Near Eastern Palestinian farming than the seed of a mustard, right? And so we're going to put that in the ground, and nothing grows larger in, in a garden than a mustard bush. Now, a mustard bush could grow as big as, as 15 by 6 feet. So from a, a 1 or 2 millimeters to 15 by 6 feet. Though it's a bush, it was so large that people often called it a tree. It's huge. I mean, think about how big that is. Now, I did a one-dimensional, uh, I, I did some one-dimensional math because I'm just not very good at, at you know, at geometry, I guess. But... If you take a seed that's one millimeter in length and just doing one dimension, look, looking at the length, to be 15 feet tall, that's 4,500 times larger than its start. And that's just the one dimension, right? I mean, think about a tree that's as 15 feet tall and six feet wide. How many grains of sand would it take to fill that tree? Millions and millions and millions. This is dramatic growth that he's talking about here. This is amazing. The growth is so astounding to do some, to take something that is so minuscule, so seemingly inconsequential to result in something that's so vast. It has to be a miraculous work of God. And the same goes for the kingdom. God's king comes, born as a baby of a virgin in a stable. He's raised by a poor carpenter named Joseph in an insignificant, unimportant little town called Nazareth. He lived an ordinary life until his ministry began when he was in his 30s. He came out of nowhere to start, but he preached and acted with such authority that after just three years, people were ready to hand him over to die for what he was saying, for what he was doing. He died this humiliating death on a cross, and after he rose from the grave, he entrusted his work to some motley crew of 12 nobodies who went out and suffered and died, but in the process found some people who were of no apports, who went and suffered and died, who found other people who were ordinary, unimportant, insignificant people who suffered and died, and so on and on and on and on it goes. And you know what happens? The kingdom grew from inconspicuous, unbelievable, unobservable beginnings comes this amazing fruit. The kingdom continues to grow. Despite the meager beginning, the kingdom grew. Despite the opposition, the kingdom grew. Despite the hardships and suffering, the kingdom grew. We cannot explain this. Apart from this is God's work. And then there's this reference of birds of the air, these birds nesting in the shade are the nations. They're Gentiles. They're non-Christians. They're you and me. 
This is taken out of Ezekiel 17, where Ezekiel gives a messianic prophecy saying, under the rule of the Messiah, the nations will come to salvation. And the nations are pictured as birds that come and lodge in God's tree of blessing. These birds are representative of the nations. In other words, this is going to expand not only to Israel, but throughout the world that nations will come and be a part of God's kingdom. These birds, they can see the evident growth of that mustard bush and they're drawn towards the shade. They're drawn towards the protection. They build their nest there because it is evident to them that this is blessing. They are drawn to it and so they become part of that growth. So Jew and Gentile alike will bask in the shade or the blessing of God's kingdom. But you know what? It doesn't mean that there aren't storms. It doesn't mean that the wind doesn't almost blow them over. It doesn't mean that there aren't predators. It doesn't mean that there are those who try to destroy that mustard bush. All of those things are present. But yet the kingdom continues to grow. There are even times, maybe days or weeks or years, where they can't see evident growth. But God is continuing to grow that. God is continuing to build that in unimaginable ways. The kingdom is is not just growing in and where you can see it, but it's happening throughout the world. Right? We can take confidence in the fact that God is going to finish His purposes. And even when we look around and we don't see evident growth, right? We can still take hope because God is faithful. He will do it. He cannot be thwarted. He will not be thwarted. He will accomplish His purposes. I tell you, this was good for my soul this week. Because as a church planter who is constantly bombarded with the pressure of growing your church, is always tempted to sell out. It's always tempted to take one of these other approaches. It's easy to be discontent with the fact that you're 70% college students. We're discontent because you see that people are there and they're kind of on the, on the edges, but they're not really investing their lives in it. And you pray for them because you know that they need a church. It's easy to become discouraged in and of ourselves unless we can take confidence in this fact that God is growing His kingdom and He's doing it in unimaginable ways, not just here, but throughout the world. That's great comfort for our souls. This kingdom started with a humble king and it will grow in incredibly miraculous ways that includes ordinary, weak, insignificant people like you and me to sow the seed and commend the gospel because we have been changed by the gospel so that we go out and we bear fruit for the gospel, fruit that extends far beyond our reach, far beyond our ability to persuade, far beyond the fact that people we don't even know and they come to the gospel and this kingdom continues to grow and grow and grow and we get to participate in ways that we can't even imagine. Because God is faithful to include us, a bunch of nobodies, into His unfolding plan that is far greater than we could ever imagine. And the result is God receives the glory for that. You and I can't take credit for that. If this church 
just exploded overnight. It was everything that I hoped and dreamed that it would be. I'd like to think that I'd give God the glory for that. I would. I'm not confident that I would. So we sow the seed patiently. We sow it faithfully, independently, yet we sow it confidently. We don't change it. We don't adjust it. We simply sow the full gospel of God and we eagerly await evidence of God's growth of the kingdom, not just here, but throughout the world until His harvest has come. And so, Lord, I I pray that you guys will be encouraged by that. God is faithful and He will surely do it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this reminder that that our responsibility is to be faithful with the Word, and then that is it. That You are the one who grows Your kingdom. That You are the one that causes it to expand and to be realized. It's really realized. It doesn't grow. Like (laughs) It's just realized. You have known the end before the beginning. So God, I pray that we would take comfort in that, that we would be confident in that that we would be patient and faithful and utterly dependent on you as we sow the seed. God, I pray for our hearts. I pray for that we would not be discouraged, that we would not make sharing the gospel about us in any way, but that it would be an opportunity to revel, to worship you as we share the most important thing with those who have not heard it. God, I pray for those in this room. As with a crowd this size, it's, it's easy for there to be those who have not really trusted in you. Who have made, taken different approaches to the gospel, may place their, their hope uh, unknowingly in, in other things other than the truth of your word. God, I pray that you would bring conviction that leads to repentance and faith that you would regenerate hearts. I pray for those who in this room who profess and are believers that they would be sanctified in this process to walk in such a way as to glorify you, not relying upon themselves and their own power, but with your strength to do what you have called us to do. We thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.